Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books in European Studies podcast. I'm your host, Talia Zemanovic. Joining us online today from Liverpool is the social and cultural historian Joe Moran, Professor of English and Cultural History at Liverpool John Moores University. He is the author of several books, most recently Queuing for Beginners, The Story of Daily Life from Breakfast to Bedtime, On Roads, A Hidden History, and Armchair Nation, An Intimate History of Britain in Front of the TV, published last Hello, and welcome to the New Books in European Studies podcast. I'm your host, Talia Zemanovic. Joining us online today from Liverpool is the social and cultural historian Joe Moran, Professor of English and Cultural History at Liverpool John Moores University. He is the author of several books, most recently Queuing for Beginners, The Story of Daily Life from Breakfast to Bedtime, On Roads, A Hidden History, and Armchair Nation, An Intimate History of Britain in Front of the TV, published last year. Armchair Nation is a beautifully written survey of television watching in Britain in the last 80 years. And I'm very happy that Joe is joining us online today. Hi, Joe. Thank you for joining us today. Hello, Tao. (laughs) Um, I've read on your blog that you define yourself as an historian of everyday life. And I wonder if you could tell us um, what that means to you and how you got interested in the everyday uh, sure. Um, well, I have a fairly eclectic um, sort of academic background, really. I, I did a, a degree in history and politics, and then I did a, an MA in English, and then I did a PhD in American studies. So I'm a bit kind of homeless in terms of uh, where I am. Uh, and I've ended up teaching in a department that is an English department, but it's um, it's very kind of open to cultural historical approaches. And um, I, I think probably most people... Um, from outside of my department probably think of me as a historian but um, I'm actually also very interested in in writing uh, I teach a, a module on um, uh, contemporary non-fiction and that's the kind of writing that I'm uh, I, I read a lot and I'm interested in, in writing as well so uh, a lot of what I've been writing about the everyday most recently has been um, trying to write um, work that is um, scholarly and and hopefully kind of historically informed, but that is also uh, interesting to a, a wider readership and is also interested in kind of questions of narrative and pacing and 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 sort of rhetorical interest as well. Um, I got interested in the everyday. Um, that's some, something that I've been writing about for about a decade. Um, uh, partly through um, mass observation, which uh, I, I was a student at, uh, I was a PhD student at Sussex, which is where the, the mass observation archive is. Um, obviously, the everyday is quite a big area, but I, I guess I'm kind of interested in the the, the seemingly banal, the, the seemingly boring and routine that 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 doesn't seem to have a 
a history because it's just what we do day after day and, and habits kind of change invisibly and, and slowly. Um, so I'm interested in that kind of process of invisible social change. Um, and um, uh, I'm interested in um, sort of minimal or ephemeral forms of human community that emerge out of those everyday activities. So, so I did a book um, called Queuing for Beginners, which is a sort of cultural history of everyday habits, which is <laughs> partly inspired by by the mass observation surveys of the 30s and 40s. Uh, and then I did a, a book um, called On Roads, which was um, the kind of cultural history of the motorway system in Britain. Um, and my most recent book is, is called Armchair Nation, which is a, 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 a history of, not, not really a history of television, it's a history of watching television mm-hmm. in, in Britain um, from the very first kind of display of television in Selfridges in the 1920s all the way up to the present day. So, so I yeah, I'm interested in in kind of uh, those kinds of activities that uh, fill up our everyday lives, but possibly that we don't kind of reflect on uh, very much. And that's, I guess, that partly connects with uh, the sort of writing for a for a sort of non academic audience because I'm I'm hoping that, that those those are the sort of things that people people will be interested in, or that or that perhaps they or perhaps they, even if they didn't know they'd be interested in them, that they that they would want to hear about the, these things that. That, that take up so much of our lives. Mm-hmm. I, just, I have to say that the book is really beautifully written, and its um, its narrative is extremely engaging. And I, you know, I loved reading it. Even you know, if you kind of not look at it in a, in a uh, professional eye. Um, so I think you know <laughs> that was already um, very well achieved. But I want to ask you a bit about the archives of the everyday. And you mentioned mass observation, and I, I'm not sure all you know our listeners um, are acquainted maybe with this um, immense archive. Can you tell us a bit about it? Uh, sure. Um, well, mass observation started um, in 1937. Um, it was founded um, by two or three people but probably the guiding force was a man called tom harrison who was a who was an anthropologist who um uh decided he wanted to do an anthropology at home so he wanted to 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 study britain in the same way that um that people like malinowski were 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 studying uh kind of tribal peoples in the trobriand islands um so came home to britain in the 1930s and uh started this um well well mass observation kind of consists of lots of different things, really. Uh, one was the kind of large-scale uh, anthropological project. So Tom Harrison would, went to uh, a play, uh, Bolton, uh, which he called work, Worktown, in the in the surveys, and did things like um, did sort of field work in factories or pubs, um, and looked at kind of everyday habits like smoking and drinking. Um, there was another kind of aspect of mass observation which um which was uh essentially uh people uh, ordinary people contributing their own writing uh in what were called day surveys which is like sort of a diary of a single day that everybody kind of wrote on on a particular day it was usually the 12th of the month um and that mass observation kind of petered out after the second world war um although uh, it kind of continued in various forms it, it, and and actually it, it was revived in 1981 and it's still going on in uh, organized through through the university of sussex but but not in the 
not in the kind of large-scale anthropological fieldwork, more in terms of ordinary people contributing their own diaries and day surveys. So uh, I've used that. I've used mass observation quite a lot in my work. um, That there's as well as uh, the archive uh, at Sussex, there's also a digital archive now where they've actually kind of digitised quite a lot of the archive from the from the earliest days. Um, And obviously, it's given that I'm interested in the everyday. It's it's um, it's really kind of rich pickings because it's it's um, it, 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 it's uh, stuff that is exactly what I'm looking at to pe- just people's everyday lives really and their everyday habits. Yeah, actually, it's it's an amazing archive. I've I've worked there a bit, and you could really get it amazing stuff. Um, but I want to connect, you know, this archive and the format of people writing the, these daily diaries that they sent in, and to ask you about um, the challenges of working with this kind of source. Like, for example, how do you extrapolate, you know, from the private to the general? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the um, in terms of the TV book, it it was quite hard. Um, I mean, what one of the thing, one of the inspirations for for the book, I suppose, um, was um, I mean, the great thing about the mass observation day surveys is that they're not really diaries. They they are they, they basically. Um, asked everybody to write about what they were doing on a single day um, and you get a real sense of simultaneity um, as well as being quite vivid because they're actually about people's uh, everyday lives and the kind of particularities of those lives um, it, you, you get almost a kind of cinematic sense yeah. of the same uh, of, of people doing quite similar things all across the country at the same time. And when you read, um, there's a book called May the 12th, which is a a mass observations account of the coronation in 1937. And they got people to do a day survey uh, on that day. And when you read that book, you get, you, you do get a sort of cinematic sense almost of, of um, the whole country kind of coming together in one moment. And mass observation was very interested in those kinds of simultaneous activities. It was interested in the sort of particularity of the everyday and the sort of concreteness and the detail of people's lives. But it was also interested in the things that brought those lives together. So it was interested in things like radio and newspapers and those kind of virtual forms of community that mass culture, that mass society was creating. And I, I think that mass observation would have been very interested in television. It, it kind of it finished really before television got going, but television was precisely that kind of simultaneous experience. Everyone would be watching television at the same time. So, so that was the the inspiration for the book. Really, is I kind, of, kind of wanted to write almost a series of day surveys that that pe- you, you get a sense of everyone kind of watching the same program. Um, it's quite hard to do though because um, I mean the other inspiration I suppose was um, was David Kiniston's um, s- series of sort of ongoing series of books about mm-hmm. post-war Britain where a lot of the vividness of those books comes from first person accounts from diaries um, the problem I had I suppose is that um, it's just kind of representativeness, really. Um, the, the, the diaries themselves are very fragmentary. I mean, mass observation made no claims to be 
the kind of sociologically representative. And it's even more difficult, I think, when um, when thinking about people watching television because people don't tend to write about their experience of watching TV very much. Um, uh, they tend to write about things like getting their first television, mm-hmm. like Nella Last, who was one of the the great um, mass observation diarists. Uh, there's an entry about her, actually, the television arriving in her house, but then she actually just kind of gets bored with it and mm-hmm. doesn't really kind of watch it very much. Um, so the, I suppose the challenge was just trying to find people um, who uh, sort of cared enough about the experience of watching television to write about it. So, so I ended up with a whole series of kind of rather strange people to write about who weren't necessarily kind of representative, but they were people who cared about TV a lot and wrote about it a lot in their in their diaries or in other in other kind of first person forms. So, I mean, I have a question that kind of, um, I guess, is a kind of follows up on on the previous one, and, um, and that's a question that I think one of the central tensions in the book is uh, originated at least from thinking about television consumers as a community that is, you know, created by the act of viewing, and I guess from there the title of Armchair Nation. Um, yeah. But on the other hand, there's the fact that it's really impossible to speak about audiences as a homogeneous entity. Yeah. Um, and so I'm interested to know if you, you know, you feel this tension could be resolved, is resolved in the book, or was well, just part of the you know, the discipline. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure it is resolved really, and I suppose I suppose that's kind. I suppose that's kind of what I'm interested in is that it's just the challenge of writing about something that is so ephemeral and intangible. I mean, I think one of the valuable things, in a way, about about watching TV um, is is that it's it's a form of community that doesn't demand very much from you mm-hmm. um, that you just have to watch you just have to put the television on and watch it um, and I do think there is something valuable about everyone about people being brought together to do a kind of similar activity like that um, and it's um, that, that you can join a community without having to uh, kind of belong to it or, or kind of um, agree with everyone who's doing doing the same thing at the same time. I do think there is something valuable about that, but but perhaps its value is very intangible. Perhaps its value can only be seen retrospectively. Um, but yeah, I think w- one of the problems in, w- that I had in the book is just trying to visualize and write about that community that is almost kind of invisible in a way um, because... Um, watching tv is a is a private activity mostly uh and it's a kind of sedentary activity that people most people do uh in their homes um w- one of the um one of the decisions that i made fairly early on um writing is that i wouldn't talk very much about ratings mm-hmm. um uh but partly because the the rating system seemed to be very unreliable, but but also because I I often felt that I don't know if this is also true in other countries, but certainly in Britain, people have tended to talk about about ratings as um, almost a kind of shorthand 
for an imagined national community that that may not actually have existed. So they'll say people will say things like twenty million people watched the coronation in nineteen fifty three, as though that suggests that you know everyone was kind of wrapped in front of a television and everyone was kind of brought together in that moment. And often it's a lot more kind of complicated than that. So I suppose I was looking for slightly more complex ways um, of thinking about that sort of virtual community which as you say is is probably also kind of fragmentary and and not and divided and and complex in in um in, in other ways as well you mentioned for example that some people you know um, use the tv as a background noise some people you know have different reaction to the same thing they're watching and some people don't switch down at all so there are so many different relationships to, to viewing even one single program. That's right, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think people watch television often in a very distracted way. I mean, there's all there's all kinds of uh, uh, kind of incidents in the book of people basically kind of tuning in to watch the test card, where the test card was just kind of there to to, to sort of uh, basically for engineers to test the, test the picture. Um, but that at the same time, um, that the, the the great thing about TV, I think, is that people can get drawn into uh, the most kind of strange, serendipitous things that you would never have imagined that people would be drawn into and watch. Um, uh, I mean, there was a program on British TV in the 1980s called One Man and His Dog, which was uh, basically sheepdog trials, um, which no focus group would ever have guessed that this would become a kind of popular program, but millions of people watched it on the kind of minority channel. And I think it's partly because um, television is, and I think still is actually, uh, despite um, uh, the fact that people tend not to talk about television anymore as a collective experience i think it still is a communal experience and i think people can will watch things because other people are watching them and they'll get drawn into something and it can develop this kind of strange momentum of its own mm-hmm. so let me press you on this point a little bit more and ask you um to def- to define what it is that makes it communal i mean you're saying okay ratings is not enough so it's not enough you know, to think only about the fact that many people are watching the same thing. So, so what is it that makes it uh, communal? Um, I guess, as I say, I think a lot of that is 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 something perhaps it's so intangible that it's something maybe that you you only realize retrospectively, like the the, people, the way that people get nostalgic about children's programs they mm-hmm. they watched or, or kind of programs in the 1970s in the sort of golden age of communal television when we're kind of 20 odd million people watching um retrospectively people get a sense that they they belong to some experience there um but um yeah i don't, I don't know the answer to that mm-hmm. I, I think um uh, I, I suppose I just go back to the uh, to, to what I said that, that that I think that there's there's something valuable and almost kind of lyrical uh, about uh, people being brought together uh, in ways that they can't necessarily articulate or express, and um, uh, one of the kind of one of the kind of ways I try 
tried to kind of think about that in the book was to, to try and visualize it, mm-hmm. um, because, which is hard to do, as I say, because because um, watching TV is is such a kind of private, sedentary activity. Um, but one one of the things that I, I was always attracted to about mass observation. Um, is that it was essentially a kind of visual anthropology. It would actually watch people. Um, Tom Harrison always said that the best field equipment for an, for an anthropologist was a pair of earplugs, that you wouldn't actually listen to what they said. You'd actually just kind of watch them in their everyday lives and and look at this kind of the strange sort of poetry of collective activity. Um, and that's kind of what I tried to do in the book was to visualize that mass experience of watching TV that maybe uh, people couldn't necessarily articulate, but just things like aerials, millions of aerials appearing on rooftops in the 1950s, um, satellite dishes appearing on the sides of walls at the end of the 1980s and the early 90s, um, the, the the appearance of the architecture of television, these kind of massive television masts that uh, people got excited about them being erected in the in the 1950s, uh, the kind of huge satellite dishes in places like Goonhilly Downs in in Cornwall, where they 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 had the first kind of uh, satellite uh, transmissions. Um, so yeah, it was just trying to kind of visualize that that mass community really. Actually, uh, I think these are some of the favorite parts for me in the book. Um, this kind of discussion of the material conditions of viewing um, about uh, power cuts because so many people rush to put on the kettle when a certain show ends and, and you know, in the early 1960s or when you speak about, you know, the how family viewing breaks up a bit when the house is better heated and there's more central heating. So not necessarily everybody has to watch in the same room. And I think those kind of, um, kind of discussions of, the, of really the what it feels like or to to try and imagine how it feels like to watch television show in the 1960s for example is is really fascinating um, yeah yeah the, 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 that that's another example i suppose of that that's that's um, one of the the, the, the ways in which I start that chapter is uh, a, a huge power cut that went through the whole of Southeast England, basically because um, of what um, they learned to call the TV pickup, which is everyone stopped watching Wagon Train at the same time, and this had led to a massive kind of surge in the national grid. So, so yeah, it's that kind of evidence of a community, I suppose, that 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 is only kind of it only becomes visible in moments of crisis. I suppose, or when the, when there's a massive power cut, or or you know when television stops, and you suddenly realise that um, you, you, that the kind of architecture and apparatus that goes into uh, this kind of mass activity that everyone's been taking for granted. Yeah, and I think it's also these moments are very revealing. You know the different ways that we consume and experience television today. I mean, we cannot. Imagine, um, for example, a technician strike that goes on for two days or something, and there's no TV. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose that that's the thing about TV now is it just goes on and on, yeah. and we'll just kind of take its technology for granted. You just kind of switch it on, and it's there. Um, I mean, the 
I suppose the interesting thing for me was just kind of um, writing about when television wasn't like that, you know, when you, you um, the, the television was not on all the time. So you'd wait with the test card and you'd wait for the kind of transmissions to start up. And also when watching TV was... Uh, not an activity that you took for granted that that um, you had to wait for the television to warm up <laughs> you had to um, that the, the reception was often poor um, and there was a real kind of sense of the magic of technology that that you were in a sense you were kind of plucking the the radio waves out of the air and you were and they were kind of magically appearing on your television set um, and when the when the transmitters went up um, in the 1940s and 1950s there was a real excitement about the the arrival of the transmitter in your area um, and the the transmitters the names of the transmitters like home moss uh Kirker shots alexandra palace they were they were very sort of evocative um but of course that's gone now because uh television sort of comes from nowhere and is everywhere it doesn't rely on a transmitter in the same way so so you just kind of switch it switch the tv on and there's always something on on uh all the time yeah i think you get you have a good um image for it that we expect it to function as a faucet and to just you know you switch it on and it's there like any um, other amenity that you know we expect from uh, in our lives um, yeah but I want to ask you you mentioned regions and I think that's you know another thing that you do very well in the book you're very attentive to to regions and um, you know on the one hand you do tempt you are tempted to speak in national terms but on the other hand you do devote time to talking about the different pace of the spread of television in Britain and the various meanings um, of its arrival for for, for different regions um, so you know I kind of finished reading the book and I thought that actually um, reveals the need for more micro studies of television you know um, of regional studies do you agree that there's more need for that? Um, yeah, that's certainly one sort of thing I was trying to correct, I suppose, in, in the book was just to think about, yeah, to think about the, the uneven rollout of television. I, I don't know if this applies to other countries, but I think what's interesting about Britain is that because it does have a single time zone and so, and television was meant to be kind of truly national. And of course we had the BBC, which uh, ha had a kind of commitment to rolling out television uh, across the nation and, and um, was probably responsible for it um, arriving in the, the fringes in places like Orkney and Shetland and Cornwall sooner than it might have done because um, it, it was not particularly economically viable to do that, but, but the BBC was kind of publicly funded, had a, had a kind of obligation to do that. But, um, but yeah, um, I mean, I suppose there's two things. One was the rollout of television itself, um, which was a very kind of, as you might expect, a very uneven, very fraught, very political process. Um, uh, and um, uh, certainly places like the, the Highlands and Islands of Scotland, they were very ambivalent about television because they saw it as uh, kind of destroying their own kind of oral culture, their own kind of forms of popular culture. Um, but actually as well, that, 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 um, that they also saw it as a way of... Uh, 
uh, uh, eventually as a way of maintaining their kind of linguistic traditions and of, there's now a kind of Gaelic language channel um, on the BBC called Alba. Um, uh, also when ITV, when the, when the um, uh, commercial television channel started in 1955, um, it, dis- it differentiated itself from the BBC by making itself regional uh it was the bbc that was the its commitment was to was to uh, kind of national the national community of tv uh and itv kind of divided itself up into regions and it was very identifiable by uh by its regions and people actually got very attached to uh the regional identity of those of those channels like Granada, like Anglia, they all had um, their own kind of startup themes, their own kind of idents that people were very, people identified very much with their, their regions. And um, uh, I think, I guess one, one of the kind of sadnesses at the end of the book is that that, that kind of goes because, of, because w- 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 one of the things that made television regional uh, was the limit of the transmitter uh, that was essentially what defined the regions was how far the television signal could reach from a transmitter and of course that no longer really applies um, because television doesn't just come from transmitters it can also exist on your laptop and it you know it, it's uh, it exists on catch-up services and uh, um, so so I think television has kind of lost that sense of connection with place uh, it just kind of comes from everywhere now. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's do something a bit different. Um, and that's um, because the book has a survey of almost 80 years of television uh, watching, the narrative progresses through different milestones in the history of television in Britain. So, for example, the first broadcasting of the you know BBC broadcasting from its studios in um, at Alexandra Palace in London in 1936, or as you mentioned before, the opening of the commercial channel in 1955, or, um, I don't know, the sensational appearance of the Sex Pistols on the Today Show in 1976. So um, I'm interested you know how you chose uh, these specific moments yeah i mean um one of the things I, I realized fairly early on is that it couldn't be a sort of comprehensive history mm-hmm. um because um I, I mean television was just so vast um and uh capacious and, and nebulous it's just kind of really hard to to get a handle on um i suppose i suppose really i chose them uh i go back to the the, the what i said earlier about being interested in writing um i kind of gave up any sense of uh of kind of comprehensiveness and i chose things that uh that i thought were kind of vivid and would be vivid and interesting to to a kind of general readership and that would I mean, it's not, as I say, it's not a history of television, it's a history of watching television. Mm-hmm. So I chose things that um, maybe were not necessarily, I, I actually probably left out quite a lot of important milestones in the history of TV, but I chose things that, that I thought said something interesting about um, the changing nature of the television viewer. Mm-hmm. Um so, uh, so I guess that was what kind of what I, the, the criteria that I used. So I think in the book you're kind of both drawn to and cautious about these canonical events that um, 
you know, are, are kind of familiar um, to people that write about television in, in Britain. Um, and you argue that even writing about it sometimes amplifies the mythology and the nostalgia surrounding them. So can you say more about this conflict of, you know, on the one hand, these are great narrative, you know, moments, uh, but on the other hand, kind of, you know, what is your role in, in, in amplifying maybe a moment that wasn't as significant at the time? Yeah. I mean, um, it's, um, I mean, I suppose one example is the coronation, Mm -hmm. uh, which, um, uh, I I think actually a a lot of people, probably even a lot of historians probably think of as the, um, the moment when television arrived, Mm -hmm. uh, in Britain. And one of the things I wanted to do in the book was to show that, um, television had a much, uh, longer, sort of prehistory than we think and that actually um uh the coronation was an important moment in 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 television's history but but actually it was already a, a quite a sophisticated uh and well established medium by then um uh and I, and I think one of the reasons that um uh, people think of the coronation as this kind of landmark moment um, is partly because of lack of evidence of anything before that that um, the coronation was really the, the moment that marked the beginning of telerecording, which was uh, um, the, the, uh, the the first kind of primitive form of making a, 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 a copy of a television program. So there's very little evidence of kind of moving images before then. And I think it's that that's part Partly made people think that there wasn't much television before 1953. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of, I, I kind of realised that. I mean, uh, one of the sort of slightly kind of poignant. Um, uh, things about the research was just kind of realizing all these television programs that have been forgotten, uh, even programs that actually made quite a big impact at the time, and they've just kind of vanished into the ether. They've sort of vanished into oblivion. I, I had a sort of rather uh, affecting kind of uh, a few days in the British Library, um, reading through the entire run of the Radio Times which is the kind of official kind of listings of the kind of BBC and just realizing all these programs that have been kind of forgotten about. Um, and yeah, I, I, so I kind of realized that because there's so much television, uh, and it's this sort of relentless kind of dailiness of it, um, that it just, there's far too much of it to enter collective memory. Mm-hmm. Um, so that inevitably, any kind of history of watching TV becomes a sort of meditation on the nature of collective memory and, and mythology that, that, that you come across kind of landmark moments that actually weren't particularly landmark moments. And then you come across uh, programs that had a huge impact at the time that, have, that people haven't remembered for whatever reason. Um, I think it's part, I think the, the thing about these sort of landmark moments is, it is, it's it's partly to do with the the uneven rollout of television that we were talking about. That not everybody could get television in 1953, so it couldn't have been this um, this extraordinary uh, event for the whole of the country because uh, it's only about half the country could actually get television. So, uh, 
you know, although the book really progresses linearly, as we said, from decade to get, decade through these um, kind of narrative moments, um, you're very careful, I think, to draw continuities rather than ruptures in our viewing patterns. So kind of the persistence of all old habits and, and rituals seems to be a theme in your work. Is that something that interests you? Um, yeah, I suppose it's it's something that em- emerges naturally out of an interest in the everyday and the in the habitual and routine. Really, is that you? I guess I guess I tend to be quite suspicious of the neophiliac. You know, I, I, I get I'm quite suspicious of people who think that uh, technolo- technology has just changed everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, the game has changed, and and that uh, uh, and, and that there's been a kind of revolution in in watching habits, and because um, I, I, I think that um, generally in the history of TV that the certainly the viewers have been quite habit loving mm-hmm. and quite resistant to change actually that the um a lot of the changes in british television certainly in the founding of new channels the arrival of satellite the arrival of digital um a lot of those things have been driven by the industry and by government Mm -hmm. uh and actually people uh, the the actual viewers have not there's not been a kind of clamor for change and they tended to be quite resistant to those changes and they tended to adapt it's not that they they haven't used the new technologies it's that they've tended to adapt them to their own purposes and they've uh, they've carried on with their own kind of habits and routines and certainly kind of kind of looking through that, that 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 those kind of days i spent at the radio times looking through tv listings that there is a lot of continuity i mean i mean uh, one of the most popular programs on british tv at the moment is strictly come dancing and you know that was there was a version of that kind of 60 years ago in 1954 so uh, yeah i think i think uh, i think do, things do change quite slowly and gradually so is there anything unique about the digital armchair nation in comparison to the pre-digital one? Uh, well, that's one of the that's that's the way the book ends, actually, is with the with this final kind of switching off of the analog signal. Um, I, I'm not sure. I mean, um, uh, the the. the We've had digital TV for quite a long time now. Um, the, the, the digital channels sort of came in at the end of the nineties, and uh, um, a lot of the rhetoric at the time was that the uh, the television would end as a communal experience and that the, the, the essentially watching TV would be like listening to music it would be like selecting a playlist on your ipod or or your mp3 player uh and everybody would have their own kind of menu and everybody would be listening to their own kind of individual or or watching their own kind of individual choice of program so we would all become sort of atomized individual consumers Mm -hmm. um uh, I'm not sure that's actually happened. Uh, and actually, people have been saying that television as a shared experience 
would end ever since the arrival of sort of video in the 70s people thought everyone would be time shifting and and uh and and that nobody would be watching television at the same time anymore i mean uh television is changing i mean and these technologies are changing things the kind of catch-up services and and the sort of plethora of channels and 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 kind of digital uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, recording of programs and so on. Um, but I still think actually that television is fundamentally still, certainly I think it is in, in Britain anyway, is still fundamentally a collective experience. It's something that uh, uh, a lot of the enjoyment of it is is communal and i just and, and i don't think the the digital armchair nation has changed that it's changed it a bit but i don't think it's changed it as much as people think okay so you mentioned in the book that um twitter is a way for people to actually increase the communal uh um nature television viewing uh do you want to say more about that uh sure um I mean, I suppose that's an example in a way of, of how I think uh, technology is often used in unpredictable ways. Um, I mean, what, one of the um, uh, books that I was very struck by when I was uh, – when I was writing the book was a book called The Shock of the Old by a historian of technology called David Edgerton. And um, he talks about how a lot of the um, our understanding of historical and technological progress is, is what he calls innovation centric, which is that we, we tend to think that technology kind of happens in uh, technological change that sort of happens in inexorable and, and linear ways. Um And actually, um, we don't, we underestimate how much, um, those kind of new inventions will have to struggle against the forces of habit and inertia in our daily lives. And I think one of the, one of, one of the predictions about television sort of 10 or 15 years ago was that, you know, we would all become this kind of, that technology would turn us into these kind of atomized consumers. And actually, that's not really what happened, has happened. Happened that actually, in, in some, in a, in a funny way, I actually think that television is more of a communal experience now. It's something that more that people talk about more collectively, and you get this kind of improvised invention of the hashtag on Twitter, which is basically a way of of a of a kind of virtual community meeting to talk about a program that's on at the same time. Uh, and actually, if you look at the kind of trends on Twitter, uh, the sort of top trends, a lot of them, certainly in this country, are television programs. People are just basically watching TV and they're creating this kind of uh, virtual conversation about a program that's that they're all watching at the same time. So do you think it's still a private act or that viewing, you know, a program while twitting is no longer private? Well, it's both, I suppose. I mean, it's. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to uh, make too much uh, claims for you know, the things that people say on Twitter about about programs. I mean, a lot of it is fairly kind of banal. Obviously, a lot of it's just kind of people saying, "I'm I'm enjoying this" or "I'm not enjoying this" or slagging it off. Um, but what I do think it does is it demonstrates uh, that p- p- people want to. 
uh, watch television, um, uh, uh, partly to enjoy it privately, but also as a kind of communal experience. And they part of the excitement of it and the interest of it is that other people are doing it at the same time, that there's a kind of momentum that's developing and that, uh, you know, that it, it kind of shows that we are kind of um, social animals in a way. Mm. So I... I- I want to ask you, like, the last question about um, armchair nation is that you mentioned along the book the divide between the the, um, optimistic view of television as a medium that enables the creation of a communal culture, like you said, that people enjoy um, kind of um, participating in a shared experience, Um, and the more sinister view that blames television for the breakup of old communities in exchange for an illusion of a community. So am I right to think that you align yourself with the optimists? Uh, I suppose so. Um, uh, although you know, I think it's uh, the television is such a kind of vast, authorless uh, collective fiction that it's almost kind of impossible to generalise about it. You could say, uh, you know, you could almost kind of cherry pick any example, and you could show that it it, it had had a, a particular effect. Um, but yeah, I suppose again, as a as a historian focusing on the very recent past um, you do sort of realize that these uh, fears and anxieties resurface in different forms um, I mean uh, uh, the certainly when um, the television came along in the in the sort of 1950s people people did worry about that they did worry about the kind of destruction of community um, but actually, um, certainly in this country anyway, people now get very nostalgic about the so-called golden age of television in the 1960s and 1970s, where they, they, they think there was a sort of sense of community just created out of the fact that there were only three television channels and, and programs are watched by 20, 20 plus million people. Um, so the fact that those kind of arguments and anxieties and fears kind of are so adaptable that they 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 kind of change uh, almost overnight um, to, to, to kind of adapt to changing historical circumstances because it doesn't necessarily mean that those fears and anxieties are misplaced but it does kind of put them into perspective I suppose that you you, you begin to to realize that nostalgia is a very sort of omnivorous urge that people get nostalgic about the the strangest things um um and uh yeah as as i say i do do think that uh that that uh habits and uh routines change slowly i don't think um i don't think television has changed human nature i don't think it's changed our um our kind of desire to have kind of communal collective experiences um so let me just ask you lastly um if you have a new project or what are you interested in these days uh, I'm working on something very different, actually. I, I'm doing a, a sort of cultural history of shyness. Um, it's um, it's a book called Shrinking Violet. It's, it's called Shrinking, Shrinking <laughs> Violet, the, the Secret Life of Shyness. So it's um, it, it's a very it's. I, I hope it's still kind of interested in the mundane and the everyday because the thing about shyness is that it's um, 
it's it's a sort of fairly everyday kind of um mundane non-extreme uh emotion experience um but it is a slightly kind of different tack and it pro- and it's going to be a slightly more kind of essayistic and uh probably a, a less british um kind of take on it but that's what i'm working on at the moment it sounds fascinating i look forward to reading it um thank you so much for joining us today joe i really enjoyed our conversation thanks tal Th- thanks for uh, i i enjoyed it as well